0: Talking books on New South One O Six to One O Eight Dear Ruby, thanks or two from you. Forgive silence, weary. Little news from Berlin. No plans. Work be and leaking in shark-infested waters. How I wish I could call it a day with easy mind. But not yet quite quenched. No plans. Next commitment to work start next September. Sweating with fright already. Love to Kay. Love, Sam the words of Irish playwright, novelist and theatre director Samuel Beckett in a letter to American theatre scholar Ruby Cohn dated the 14th of November 1977. Hello, how are you and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill, it's great to have your company this evening. Well on tonight's show we're going to unpack the final and fourth volume of letters of Samuel Beckett 1966-1989 to 1989, which has just been published by Cambridge University Press. This evening I'm joined by Professor Dan Gunn from the American University of Paris, one of the four esteemed editors of this fascinating, unique and colourful collection of letters. In the introductions to the letters of Samuel Beckett, 1966 to 1989, Professor Dan Gunn writes, If one thing emerges from the bulk of letters Beckett writes during these years is that his attention to the words he deploys is despite all protestations about flagging as acute as ever. Words matter, letters matter and go on mattering, even or especially when the sender knows he will probably never see the letters intended recipient again. So what type of a man was Samuel Beckett? And how important were his friendships, lovers and many creative and business relationships in the last third of Beckett's writing life?
1: I'm Dan Gunn, and I'm a Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature and English at the American University of Paris. And for the last 25 years, I've been working on preparing an edition of Samuel Beckett's letters, along with my colleagues, Lois Moore-Overbeck of Emory University, Martha Fessenfeld, whom Beckett asked to deal with his correspondence, and George Craig, formerly of the University of Sussex. And the four of us, For the last, in my case, 25, and for Lois and Marty even longer, I've been preparing this edition, the final volume of which, Volume 4, has just been published, and it covers the period 1966 until Samuel Beckett's death in 1989 at the age of 83. So 24 years of Beckett's life. I thought I could maybe start perhaps by reading a a short letter from Beckett. This is to his friend Robert Pinget. It's a letter written in French and wonderfully translated by George Craig, himself an Irishman from Trinity College, Dublin, like Beckett himself in the call Normale. And I think it's typical of the way in which Beckett encouraged people. He was very encouraging in financial terms once he started to have some money himself. But above all, he helped younger, known and successful writers to um, continue with their work. And this becomes particularly the case in this final volume. So this is a letter... From the 24th of May 1966, and Robert Pinget had recently won the 1963 Prix des Critiques for his novel L'Inquisitoire, and his novel Quelqu'un had won the 1965 Prix Femina. And it also illustrates Beckett's um, attitude towards prizes and celebrity more generally, and it's something of a tonic in this age of celebrity seeking. He goes, Dear Robert, I'm in too bad a way to be able to respond usefully to your last note. Let's wait till we meet. I'm coming back at the end of the month. You are wrong to run down your work. We're not literati. If we take such dire pains, it is not for the result, but because that is the only way to keep going on in this wretched planet. With that kind of need, a great deal of misery, but no problems." Maybe you have lost it a bit, but it will come back and leave you, once again, not giving a tinker's curse for any of these questions of value. I think that all this business about prizes and other perks has done you no good whatever and may well be contributing to the state you feel yourself in. Forget all that. Stop rereading your writing and get back to work. We shall never, any of us, know what we are worth, and it is the last question we should be asking. I, at any rate, love... What you have done and very much, much hope that you will carry on affectionately,
0: Sam. Dan, what a terrific choice of letter to begin tonight's programme. I have to say, when I read that one, I was so touched and so warmed. And it really encapsulates who Beckett was because he so encouraged so many people around him creatively, morally. But he was a very resilient character, a very pragmatic character. And first and foremost, he was an unbelievable friend. That's
1: right. Um, I think one of the things that our edition of the letters has done is humanize Beckett. He did have a rather stony, granite-like appearance at times and reputation. And the authorized biography by James Nolson went a long way to correcting that impression, letting us see just how many people he knew, how active he was in various groups of friends, family um, in various countries that he lived in and visited, But he still had a reputation, I think, of being rather um, almost inhuman. And the letters show just what an extraordinary uh, man he was in terms of his friendships, kindness, generosity. He went out of his way, and particularly with those who were less fortunate than himself. And if anyone had ever done a nice gesture towards him when he was... Struggling. He never
0: ever forgot it. To what extent did letter writing keep Beckett in the world? And what I mean by that is keep him circulating, in contact, keep him energized?
1: It's a very interesting question and one that I've really given a lot of thought to because when we first started uh, working on this, firstly we weren't aware of just how many letters there were and Beckett himself certainly wasn't aware. Now we have something in the order of collected more, around sixteen thousand letters. That's a lot of letters. So He was a very avid, maybe that's not quite the right word, but in any case a very assiduous letter writer. He responded to almost everyone who ever wrote to him. It was a duty for him, but I think it was also, though he often complains of it, a pleasure. And I think it allows him to keep or to maintain, even to establish precisely the sort of distance that he felt he needed, particularly when writing. He wanted to be in the world, and we see that a lot. He liked to be in Paris, he liked to meet friends, go out drinking... He liked later on to start producing his own plays, directing his plays. But he also felt he needed a great deal of silence and solitude for his writing. And so many of his letters, at least, and most of them are written not from Paris, but from elsewhere. And often from places where he went in order to write, particularly his little country house to the east of Paris at Oussi-sur-Marne. So by going to Oussi, he could withdraw from the world. But by writing letters, he could make sure he didn't withdraw too far from the world. It allowed him to keep... The contacts to keep uh, things alive for himself. And that sort of, you're there and you're not quite there seems to suit him very well and letters certainly permit that.
0: There is a lovely letter to Anne Attic, the poet from, I think it was January 1974, and he encouraged her by writing, poetry is there faint and clear all the way, breathing through them all. You must find a way of going on. Do you think we can apply that going on to Beckett himself. Because one thing that really comes through from all, all the different letters is that he also struggled on a daily basis.
1: Nothing is easy for Beckett. He he makes that very clear. Although the curious thing is, and I think this speaking particularly of this fourth volume, is that given that he has a sort of some type of old man inside himself from when he was born, he said in a sense that something had perhaps died within him before he was born, that old age and the privations of old age actually... We are no great shock to Beckett, so he has a lot of complaints about his daily life and going on in the first volume. It's just before the war, uh, the 1930s. But by the time he, he's an, at least he's 60 years old when this volume begins, he's actually complains a lot less about life than he did in his earlier days. But he does find particularly the commitment to writing a very very onerous one. It's clear by this stage that he's not going to be doing anything else. In his earlier life, he fantasized about all sorts of other professions. By this stage, he knows this is what he's going to be doing. And it is difficult for him, and his degree of commitment that he has to it is itself, as I said, onerous. But he goes on, and that sense of fortitude, the sense of going back to work, the duty to work, is one that, as we saw in that letter to Pange, he directs towards others, but he's constantly directing it towards himself. He really does feel, and this this he sometimes describes himself as a Protestant part of himself, this to be the duty to work work is the best there is. It's the best that there is in life. And that's his commitment and he, and he never uh, falters in front of that commitment. He's working really up until the very last year of his life, producing some of his finest work.
0: And part of that commitment was that the words really did matter, didn't they?
1: That's right. It's the word that matters it's, uh, and <laughs> words are the best of him And that's really, you know, it's often quoted as saying his duty was to leave a stain upon the silence there is that very strong sense that he has in his later life that really this was the one thing he was put on earth for, and all the rest is somehow, even friendship, which is very important to him, but all the rest is stuff that other people can do. This is the one thing that only he can do. And maybe I can just read a very short letter in that context. It's a very nice background to this letter, because I remember when I first came to Paris in 1984 to live, being very surprised, because in 1985 there was a magazine put out by Liberation, the newspaper, which asked about 100, I think, uh, famous, internationally famous writers, why do you write? Pourquoi écrivez-vous? And I was very surprised to see that Beckett had answered this, because he was famous for never answering such questions, particularly of newspapers. So when we were preparing the edition, I wanted to go back and try and find this letter, went to Liberation, and we found that he answered this because the question was posed by the son of his publisher, Mathieu Landon, the son of Jérôme Landon, who was actually one of my students in Lallum, who managed to track down Mathieu Landon. And Mathieu was kind enough to share the letter with us that he wrote to Beckett. So Beckett, he, Mathieu rather asked Beckett, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it in French, Pourquoi écrivez-vous? And Beckett replied, I'll read it because it's so short in French, and then in George's translation, he wrote... Mathieu, réponse bon Sam. So in English, why do you write? Twenty fourth of February nineteen eighty five, Beckett replies, Dear Mathieu, answer. All I'm good for. Affectionately, Sam. So I remember <laughs> laughing very loudly when I saw that. All I'm good for. And it might seem like just a gesture to deflect further questions, but I honestly think that Beckett believed that. He really did think This was what he was there to do. It's not quite a vacation. It's certainly not a mission, but it's, it's what he could do to make things better.
0: The frustration that he felt at certain stages um, in his life and also a degrees of despair and anxiety really comes through in the letters but I found it something very moving in, in what you wrote in the introductions to Volume 4. You, you mentioned that different members of the team finished some days of the week crying because they were so touched or moved by what Beckett had written in the letters, whether it was the encouraging side to him and his friendships or whether it was his genuine honesty about what was going on for him at any given moment. It's quite something, isn't it? It
1: is. I think now, in the formal context of the introduction to a big edition, I didn't want to mention it, but the person I was alluding to is George Craig, who had been my teacher, as I mentioned, formerly of of Trinity College and of École Normale here. He was my teacher at University of Sussex, and I got him involved in this project 20 years ago, and he has been the translator of the French letters. And he was exactly 25 years after Beckett, at Trinity and then at the Normale, almost met Beckett at that occasion, but didn't for various reasons. But um, one of the things that was so moving for him and indeed for the team, but perhaps for George more poignantly than for anyone else, is feeling his own aging process and watching Beckett's own aging process and you know, twenty five years later. So charting something of this man's decline inevitably as he feels it at least and at the same time this resistance to the decline and this sense of every day trying to sit down and put a few words down that that something it's quite extraordinary to watch this man i don't want to say exactly end his life but both end his life and resist
0: ending his life through words But you do notice, uh, you know, shorter letters are more explicit statements to general feelings of well-being or a capacity to be in the world or an energy to understand the world. And that really comes through. There was one letter that I found very curious and very revealing on Beckett's creative temperament and his um, understandings of the creative process. And it was very, very honest. And it took me by surprise. But then again, we are dealing with the the great Beckett. It's a letter to Christian uh, Ludwigsson. It was dated Paris 1966. He was writing about one of the stagings of, of, of one of his plays and he writes Godot in my opinion is insufficiently visualised during writing. The other plays I saw more clearly as a stage direction show. The mental stage on which one moves when writing and the mental auditorium from which one watches are very inadequate substitutes for the real thing and yet without them it is impossible to write for the theatre. superb, isn't it? It is, and it
1: really shows something of Beckett's own education in the theatre. When he started, he'd only written one substantial play prior to Godot, the play Eleutheria, which has never been produced as far as I know, and he certainly never wanted it to be produced. So he was actually rather inexperienced, even though he'd seen plenty of theatre, despite what he claims about not knowing anything about theatre. Of course he did, but he'd never written a fully-fledged work or one that he was satisfied with. And what he found is later on, and our final volume obviously dealing with the later years, is that he really didn't want to put a work of theatre into the world. He didn't want to have it published until he'd seen it acted out on the stage, because he knew he would learn things. He would see bits that worked, bits that didn't work, and probably have to alter passages, speeches, some of the stage directions, because as he says, the mental stage and the real stage are not quite the same thing. So this was an education for him too, and That said, (laughs) it's also what you just cited is a mark of the man's modesty because if ever there was a great play that seems to come fully fledged out of a a mind and onto the page and rather quickly too, it's Godot. It's the play that probably I've seen most often of Beckett's and it's almost impossible to do it really poorly. It's, It's just an extraordinary work
0: you write that as he got older and he was he was less you know committed to taking part or managing the whole practical aspects of the staging of his plays and you say that within all of that the line between work and life never clear became less and less discernible and you say that it almost merged in some way
1: beck was someone who for whom writing was never a career he was not a professional writer You saw that in that letter I read to Mathieu Landon, All I'm Good For. He described it to my colleague Martha Fesenfeld, who started the letter project. He said that this was before I fell into the ditch of writing. So if it's a ditch you fall into, you fall into it as a whole human being. You don't fall into it just as a working person. And of course, we know about ditches from Godot. He writes with his full being. He's not someone who divides up his life in that way. And, of course, this has been one of our problems because he did ask that the edition of his letters be those letters or passages of letters bearing upon his work. And that has been a very complex issue for us because how one person interprets that is not how the second person interprets it and not how the third person interprets it. And uh, we've taken a fairly broad interpretation of that. But that has actually been rather easy because Beckett is someone for, who's very cautious about his Letter writing in the sense that he tends not to um, put his heart on his sleeve exactly. They're very frank, his letters, but he's very aware that a letter can fall into the hands of someone other than its addressee. So, for example, when he writes to Tom McGreevy in the early years, McGreevy being back in Ireland, Beckett writing from Paris, occasionally he'll write to him in French, aware that chances are if this letter falls into someone else's hands, that person won't be able to understand it. He's very aware of the status of letters, even before he himself becomes famous.
0: Dan, one thing that you highlight is the fact that some of the more interesting letters are some of the more, let's say, instantly readable letters are to effectively strangers to Beckett. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily his close, intimate friends. How do you explain that?
1: I think it's something to do with the importance of letters themselves. He's so into letter writing, despite, again, him often saying that he's swamped by the avalanche of letters and he needs to hire a secretary. Um, He trusts the letter medium, despite what I've just said about how it could fall into other people's hands. He trusts it for what he wants to say. He just doesn't want to say details of his intimate life. And so there's a sense of which, when he's writing out letters to people he maybe doesn't know so well, he is, towards the end of his life, giving something of a record Something even almost for the record, even though he's the least self anthologizing and self obituary writing of, of writers, he is aware in his late years that something is going to outlive him. He's aware of the interest of biographers in his life, he's aware of the interest in people anthologizing, doing things with his letters. And he's aware, for example, that his plays are going to be put on in national theatres, that they're going to be, become parts of famous repertoires. And so his, his attitude changes a lot in the late years towards his legacy, if we can put it that way. And I think some of those letters to relatively unknown people, maybe could be read in that light. I could read one um, that I think is typical of this, and it's extremely surprising from the context of earlier letters, where he's very, very reluctant to comment on his own literary practice. It's in our volume two, so in the late 1940s or early 1950s, when he's being asked, he's he's starting to gain some notoriety, and this is particularly the case after 1953, when Godot becomes famous. He's asked very often, why did you move to write in French? Because, as you know, most of the great works of that great middle period were written in French, including Godot really one of the most surprising achievements in literature. And usually what he would say is, I'd prefer not to talk about this. Um, He gives one hint in a letter, he says, le besoin d'être mal armé, the the need to be ill-equipped. So the general understanding that Beckett scholars have is that Beckett moved to French because he was less fluent in French, partly to avoid the influence of James Joyce, for example, to get away from that easy gift of the gab, if you like. But that was about all we could make of it. And then in this letter from 1982, so seven years before his death, this is to Carlton Lake, who was the great uh, librarian at Austin, Texas. They have a fantastic collection of uh, uh, Beckett um, manuscripts and letters, and letters about Beckett. He writes to Carlton Lake, who has asked him, and I quote, why he had shifted from writing in English to writing in French. So Beckett writes, Dear Carlton Lake, thanks for yours of September 23rd. Definite switch on return to Dublin, summer 1945, when Molloy began. Already in French, poems and nouvelles. Escape from mother Anglo-Irish exuberance and automatisms. From excess to lack of colour. Distance from the writing from which clearer to assess it. Slow down of whole process of formulation impoverished form in keeping with revelation and espousal of mental poverty. English grown foreign, resumable ten years later, so on. Best, Sam Beckett. And each of these little edicts I'm, I'm giving you is, is a separate paragraph, so It really is very, very explicit about why he moved to French.
0: And and it's amazing to think how an imagination can change through a different language, how the mind reacts to and and processes it all. Just one thing I'm curious about, and it's on a kind of a very human level, we have very much a one-sided picture or one-sided conversation here with Beckett because we just have the letters that Beckett sent and not necessarily the ones that Beckett received. So I'm just wondering on a human level, did that frustrate you anyway? Or do you find that a a bit of a simplistic question?
1: Oh, it's not a simplistic question at all. Um, It's a double-edged sword in that we do have some of the letters that were sent to Beckett, even though he himself kept almost nothing, very, very little. He was not a hoarder. He was not a collector. Certain people kept copies of the letters that they sent to him. For example, Alan Schneider... Uh, his great American director, we have his letters. In fact, they were they had been published separately prior to our edition uh, because Scheider himself kept copies. Business letters, so letters from publishers, uh, we have largely because publishers would keep copies in the days of carbon copies. So it's not entirely without uh, both sides. But the very interesting, the most interesting letters from his great correspondents, Tom McGreevy, Georges Dutwy, Barbara Bray, we really don't have many of those. Now, it's frustrating from the point of view of we had to do a lot more research because he had to go back and try and figure out what Beckett was re- responding to. Since nearly all of his letters are responses, Beckett is someone who definitely responds to letters rather than initiating them. So we often had to go back and really figure out what he's referring to, a lot more work. On the other hand, there was something sort of satisfying and actually being able to publish principally just his letters because the temptation when you have both sides is then to try and do both sides and uh, really it's Beckett's words that interest us even more than the people that were writing to him.
0: I loved the letters to Barbara Bray but as I was going through it all and then thinking that you know we have Suzanne his long-time partner we don't have any letters to Suzanne and it's understandable on terms of privacy uh, and so on but it would be interesting to see how he was with her.
1: One of the questions I'm asked most often uh, when I talk about Beckett at universities or in uh, public forums is about Suzanne. She is the sort of rather grey figure that's behind Beckett for so many years. He he alludes to her with certain friends fairly openly, but with most of his friends in his letters, not at all. So yes, she. she of course, it would be it would truly be fascinating. I've met her relations, I've met people who knew her very well, and people who were very, very fond of her, and I've met some of Beckett's friends who found her difficult. So I have, I've formed my own mental picture, but it certainly isn't one that comes through strongly in the letters. I'm convinced that Beckett must have written to her, and written to her a lot, because a lot of the time they're apart. But it's not that we've withheld the letters, it's that we don't have the letters. Now, what happened to them is, like, people have speculated on, but they, they, they do not appear to have survived. Um, I don't think someone's keeping them from us. And, of course, it's complex, the relationship with Suzanne and Barbara Bray, but mm. it's not as if it's even that simple. There's Suzanne, Barbara Bray, and many, I mean, frankly, many others. He was not a man given to... Um, saying no, I think, to women. And uh, then, of course, that leads to certain complications. Well,
0: you can understand why so many women were drawn to him. If we just move aside from his unbelievable creative capacity and genius, he had so many warm, compassionate qualities, didn't he? He
1: did. And I think above all, perhaps, and I've noticed this in the case of other men and women, but perhaps particularly men to whom women are attracted. It's not just for their beauty, say, though Beckett was a very beautiful man, but for this capacity that every one of Beckett's friends that I've met and talked to has testified to, which is his capacity to make people feel that they were heard, that whatever they were saying mattered. And at this moment between them mattered. Even the most casual acquaintance somehow was made to feel that they mattered. And that ability has really come through very strongly in his letters, because he finds the language that this person, this particular person who's writing to him, is likely to both understand and respond to. And so the contrast, for example, between the letters to his family back in Ireland and the letters to some of his very, say, Abigdor Erika, the husband of Anna Teek, you read one of his Beckett's letters to her, really very, very striking. The letters to his family back in Ireland, her language is fairly simple, straightforward, and it show, shows his great knowledge and familiarity with all the ins and outs and details of second uncles, twice removed, all the family. And then sometimes to a, someone like Eureka, with whom he shared five or six languages and huge culture and art and music, he'll just let go and, and then he's working in three or four languages at once. So this ability to find the other person's wavelength, as they might say, is really very, very noticeable. And I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced this is one of the reasons why women were so drawn to him. And as I mentioned, I don't think he was... Against that, it's just that it, it means he's, and he's not at all a bourgeois conventional person, so it does get him into certain complexities. But one thing I should say is that, as far as I can see, all the women with whom he was intimate, nearly all of them at least, in the course of his long life, he remains friends with and and corresponds with.
0: Which in itself says a lot, um, doesn't it, Dan? I might ask you, one thing that um, really struck me was when you mentioned Carl Jung and you you quote from his famous Tavistock Institute lecture in London from 1935, where Jung described a patient who felt she had never been properly born. And you write, Beckett was struck by how closely this experience chimed with his own. And you talk a lot about Beckett's sense of being a survivor. Can you talk me through that?
1: Yes, I mean, he was no great fan of Jung's work in general, but he was taken by uh, W.R. Beyond his own psychoanalyst to see, to see this lecture, and he was very, very struck by it. There's some debate in the Beck community about whether this has been overdone or overplayed, but it clearly stuck in his mind, and this sense that he had of something not quite fully formed and not quite fully in life, it's, I suppose, simplifying to say that it's the same thing as depression, but it's it certainly somewhere on the depressive scale. One of the things I've noticed reading his letters is the move towards being able to use the word depressed. He uses the word tired much more commonly. I'm very tired. I'm exhausted. I'm very, very, very tired. And then the word depressed occasionally comes in. Clearly, Beckett's someone who did struggle with his own torments and his own inner sense of living and not quite living. And a lot of that comes out in his work. But he appreciated the echoes he could hear of that in both writers and in uh, in thinkers, if you like, and he's drawn to the dark side always. I think this also perhaps relates a little bit to another theme that comes through quite strongly in the letters of these later years, both this volume and the previous volume, is his immense sympathy for people who are suffering, and particularly suffering, for example, in in incarceration. He has a great sympathy for prisoners, as you I've gathered, having read the volume, the flat to which he moves and where he spends the last years, long years of his life, overlooked the Santé prison currently being done up in Paris. And so he would watch the prisoners and, uh, and had a great sympathy for prisoners and, of course, Many of the letters in this last volume are to a prisoner, a former prisoner, Rick Clucci, a former inmate of San Quentin prison in California, a rather notorious prison. Beckett befriended prisoners. He had a great feeling for prisoners, sympathy for. This comes through very, very strongly in his letters. And it's to some extent oriented his political positions as well. I suppose you could say that's already a political position. We see him mentioning his support for Amnesty International in the volume. And one of the most moving exchanges in the volume is his with uh, Václav Havel. Yeah, I the, thought I
0: was delighted to read that letter. It was quite something, wasn't it? It is, and it's the sense in which he, he's always trying to give without making... Without imposing
1: any debt upon the other person, he makes it clear that the debt is always going the other way. Very often, in the letters that he sends to uh, friends and family members that contain money, and there's a lot of them, he says, No, it's I who am in your debt. So, this generosity always coming with a sense of, You have helped me. And that's really a very moving thing for me, to watch his generosity be deployed in such a, such a thoughtful manner. I'd maybe just read a very, very short letter to Avigdor Arika again, who at this time has not yet become famous, and uh, Beckett's obviously aware that he's not doing so well. This is from the 14th of May 1966, so very early in the last, this last volume. He says, Dear Avigdor, in a dream I saw you stony broke. Don't be cross with me. Big kisses for Anne and Alba. Love, Sam. So in a dream he saw him broke, and with this letter came a check. So it was enough for Beckett to dream that one of his friends wasn't doing well, and literally the next day a check was in the mail. And this is by no means unusual. The number of people I've met who say, oh, well, you know, it was Sam who was keeping me going, who found my flat, who gave me my clothes. It's a very, very special quality. And then he says, don't be cross with me.
0: So, 106 to108 And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well on tonight's show I'm joined by Professor Dan Gunn from the American University of Paris to unravel the fourth and final volume of edited letters of Samuel Beckett, 1966 to 1989, which wonderfully reveals just how connected, thoughtful, and supportive a friend Beckett really was. I asked Dan about Beckett's intense distrust of biographers, and why he was so against his own life being put into a book. This is partly the
1: consequence of winning the Nobel Prize, and it's partly why I think he dreads winning the Nobel Prize, and we can perhaps talk about that, his attempts to not win the Nobel Prize. But he's very aware that there's going to be an intensified interest in him, the man, whereas what he wants is intensified interest in the work, and he does see really quite a separation between the work and the life, even though As you and I were saying, there isn't actually that much of a separation in his case. The the life and the work really do inform each other. So he learns in 1972, as you've mentioned, about interest in his biography, and he manages to put James Knowles off. But notice that he comes back to that in his final years and gives James Knowles the permission to write an authorised biography. So his, his, his attitude changes as it does towards his letters. But James Nolson is respectful and steps back and steps down and does other work in those intervening years, whereas the biographer, Deirdre Bear is not to be put off, and she writes the first of the biographies. And um, Beckett's wondering how to react to this, to her determination. And so he writes to um, his cousin, Sheila Page, in Surrey on the 2nd of January 1974, Dearest Ely, after a few brief meetings with Deirdre Baer, I made my position clear to her. One, I was against the whole thing. Two, I personally would give her no information or help. Three, my family and friends were free to do as they pleased and I would not try to influence them one way or another. Four, there was no point in our meeting and I would not see her again. Five, I would not read her book when it appeared. This seemed to me the only possible attitude to take. Otherwise, I would have found myself in the impossible situation of having to control and worst still censor her material, passing this and barring that. There are lies worth telling. For themselves and for the light they shed on the work, I do not find that this is the case with mine, which strikes me as an entirely irrelevant and uninteresting chore from beginning to end. Unfortunately, it is not copyright, and if Mrs. Bear does not make it public, perhaps someone else will, less scrupulous and well-intentioned than I believe her to be though she is not remarkable from what I have been told for strict veracity. She announces, for example, that this is an authorized life when she knows I deplore it, or that she sees me regularly when she does not at all. Nonetheless, I believe she is a decent woman trying to do a serious job with as little scandal, gossip and anecdote as possible. She seems to have interviewed everyone who has ever heard of me. With regard to your question, it is answered by three above. To advise you would be to intervene, which I must not do. So do exactly as you please, dear Ily. I'm going through a dull, stupid spell, but I'm pretty fit well physically. I hope to get to UC next week for a fortnight at least, though it's an effort managing alone. We've made no plans for travelling, but she'll probably go somewhere next month, perhaps Tangier again. Forgive this endless screed. Hope not too illegible. Write soon yourself in better heart. Much love to all from us both. Sam.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Dan, in the um, introduction to the French translation in the preface, George Craig, your colleague, writes, there are no shortcuts when it comes to what matters to Beckett. There's no easy summary of his practice. And where it is, whether it's letters where he's slipping between French or English or giving instructions to theatre directors or maybe even giving kind of some insights into how his mind works, it's also incredible and it's so complex, isn't it?
1: It really is because Beckett really does choose the words that come most quickly to him very often or the word from the language that most fully expresses his idea. When he's writing to correspondents who are as... Um, immersed in different languages as him, for example, uh, well, McGreevy was pretty fluent in several languages, and uh, Avigdor Rika, for example. yeah, He really does go for the word that matters and, and he's hearing the words very often in several languages in his head, particularly when he's, for example, directing his plays in Germany. So he'll introduce German words, for example. Maybe I can just say as an aside that one of our greatest challenges in this whole process, and Beckett has alluded to it in one of the letters I've read, is Beckett's handwriting is extraordinarily difficult. Some specialists of handwriting have said it's the most difficult of any major 20th century writer. And much of transcription, the process of transcription, is very, very, very informed guesswork or there's a level that you you get three or four of the letters in a word so it must the other letter you can deduce. One of our problems in transcribing Beckett's letters is that in the middle of a uh, letter say in French he'll suddenly throw in a word in English or German or one of his other languages. But
0: he may not have been conscious of that at all.
1: He may not have been. He just flicks between one and the other. But he's conscious at some level that his reader will understand this, or he hopes that his reader will understand this. He wouldn't do this, for example, to his Peggy, his his relation back in Ireland. He's aware that the other person has those languages, and so he'll just choose the one that sort of somehow says it most clearly. I'll I'll give you an example from my head, from a letter from the 1930s. So this is early, to Tom McGreevy back in Ireland. And he says, this vitaccia is tern beyond belief. So this vitaccia is an Italian word. And this sort of fat old life, this big life, this dull life, is tern, is dim, is tepid, is dull, beyond belief. So three languages in one very short sentence. It's a challenge for us as transcribers because, of course, you keep looking for the word in the language, the, the major language of the letter, and then suddenly it jumps out at you, if you're lucky, in its alien language. And it's a challenge, of course, for his readers, but it's it's never, show, well, rarely showing off. Maybe in the early years there is a bit of showing off, but in the later years it's never that. It's it's just a way of trying to get at that particular concept feeling um, emotion that is expressed by that particular language. And that's been one of the great challenges for George, is how to get all of that into, or nearly all of it, into an English that you know people will somewhat recognize. Though the thing that George is always insistent on is that Beckett's prose, his English that George is translating into, from French mostly, this should never seem exactly normal, because Beckett's English and French were never very normal.
0: His sense of humour, though, is just incredible. Some of the letters are just so quick witted, so funny, such play with words, and they're the real naughtiness or playfulness. And it was something that I I noticed in some of the earlier volumes. But there was one letter to Joycelyn Herbert, who um who we had dinner with her, herself and, the, and her mother. And he, he, he jokes with her about the, the mum found that Beckett admitted this kind of sense of calm. And he, he joked something on the lines of he wish he could do that to himself. And we have this very kind of serious idea of Beckett and this formidable intellectual mind and imagination. Yet the playfulness is everywhere.
1: It's everywhere indeed. And and in, in more and more condensed form in these late letters, I mean, sometimes he just, Tells jokes, there's limericks, there's some, uh, you know, he, he, he likes to tell a joke. But it's more in these condensations of puns or sort of little micro jokes, um, a way of expressing his particular feeling about the human condition and his decline uh, in, in, in a way that's very, very moving and funny, usually at his own expense. Very rarely at someone else's expense. In these letters. in fact, almost never. I think at someone else's expense. In these late letters, he's undermining his own seriousness all the time. Very, very aware of the dangers of pontificating, of coming across as a while any sort of wise old man. Maybe I could read a letter. It's, it's not exactly funny, but it it shows this thing that's particularly fascinating in these late letters, which is that Beckett feels like he's losing his marbles to some extent. He's losing his, his fluency and his memories and his quick-wittedness. And his hope is that he can convert this into work that will finally transmit what he's always been committed to, which is failure, a, a real radical sense of failure and loss. And of course, it, to, to communicate failure and loss, For the young Beckett, it wasn't so very difficult in one sense because he himself wasn't doing too well. But once he becomes a famous, very successful Nobel laureate, it's very hard for him to commit that, to, to really be persuasive about that sense of loss and failure. And so... He tries to explain to several people that now that he's losing his wits, that's perhaps the hope at last, that he will to write a work about loss of wit. And so he writes to this uh, chap, Lawrence Schoenberg, in whom he became interested because Schoenberg had sent him a book about uh, neurosurgery and radical cerebral loss. This is on the 15th of July, 1979, so 10 years before Beckett's death. He says, dear Mr. Schoenberg, I received and read your book before your letter reached me. It impressed me strongly. I read it too fast and shall read it again. Mere decay is a paltry affair beside the calamities you describe. It is all I can speak of, and the ever acuter awareness of it, and the preposterous conviction formed long ago that here, in the end, is the last and by far best chance for the writer, gaping into his synaptic chasms. Forgive such poor private response to your book and letter. I'm a poor hand at this form of communication. With all good wishes for your future work, yours very cordially, Sam Beckett.
0: Gaping says it all, doesn't it? Really?
1: Yes. And in a later letter to um, Herbert Myron, a, a friend and a, a book collector and academic, just a read, just a, a sentence from a letter from the, the next year, 1980. He says, "I work on with failing mind." In other words improved possibilities. So, that, I mean, it's a joke, but it's a joke to take, that he would expect to be taken seriously because he really did forge in this late work his work out of the possibility that in the very feeling of there might be something very positive for him as a writer about failure.
0: Dan, you end um, uh, volume four and the last letters that we have from Beckett. It was December the 22nd and it was a letter to Michael Cabal. It's a very short, very brief one. It says Beckett writes, I am ill and cannot help. Forgive. So go ahead without me. Best wishes to all concerned, Sam Beckett. And when I was thinking about go ahead without me and I was just wondering, is it possible to ever let go of Beckett and go ahead without him? Is that ever possible? You've been working on these letters for so many years. It must be very, very difficult.
1: I don't, I think I would not see it as a necessity, fortunately, to let go. Um, There's ways in which, of course, I'm detaching from that particular project. Um, It remains alive for me because I'm still in contact, obviously, with my fellow editors. I have Given various talks, I'm mean, you know you're kind enough to interview me about this. Um, the book is in the world, but it's going into f- our whole edition. The four volumes are going into four other languages: German, French, Italian, and Chinese. And so, while I, I don't have Chinese or German, I can help quite a bit with the French and the Italian. So there is a sense of curating maybe the the legacy a little bit of this big edition. So I, I, my that act of more academic, so we say, interest in it goes on, but it's more than that. It's When I try to respond to my students, uh, my colleagues, friends, um, when they ask me questions about literature or about life, honestly, these are my reference points. I go back and I think, not necessarily consciously, but Beckett's words from his letters, which a lot of them I know, pretty much off by heart. They well up within me and they provide me not just with a kind of comfort or solace, but often with some very, very good answers to some very difficult questions. This is particularly the case in literary questions, but also just in human questions. And if not particular directives or instructions he gave, just a sense of um, take your time and, and try and find the human response to the question that's being asked, because um, that's exactly what Beckett did. So I I would never want to let go. I don't want to make him into a saint. Uh, Hagiography was not our job. And um, he's a complex man with with all sorts of uh, difficulties like anyone else. But he really does lead a, a life that is exemplary in some ways. He takes very, very brave and difficult decisions at crucial moments in his life. And he doesn't take easy options ever, as far as I can see. And that's sets him apart from most of the intellectual class in France, for example, in the post-war era. He really is very, very special. And so getting to know him more and more over the course of these years means that I don't feel I it's not a, it's not a merely intellectual interest that I have in him. And I, and I don't think anyone who reads these volumes will come away with principally or uniquely an intellectual stimulation or satisfaction. It's, it's getting to know a man lived a very, very special life that we can learn a lot from.
0: was writer, editor and literary scholar Professor Dan Gunn from the American University of Paris The Letters of Samuel Beckett 1966 to 1989 is published by Cambridge University Press and retails for in around 42 euros in hardback Well that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a very big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme and the lovely Lee Duncan on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with a final reading from Dan Gunn from the letters of Samuel Beckett.
1: As I was saying, Beckett had this immense sympathy for prisoners and Waiting for Godot was a play that was put on from early on in the prison. Uh, In 1954, just one year after it was first produced in Paris, he learns that a group of German prisoners have translated Godot into German and put it on in a prison in Lutringhausen. And he writes to uh, the man who has done this, who's been the initiator, a prisoner. And I think, again, you can see the sense that the debt goes both ways, and his wish to to encourage a person who is incarcerated and to, to, to show that he also learns from their position. So he writes to, this is a translation from his French, around the 14th of October, 1954, to this prisoner in Lutheringhausen who has put on Godot. My dear prisoner, I read and reread your letter. Godot is from 1948 or 49, I can't remember. My last work is from 1950, since then, nothing. That tells you how long I have been without words. I have never regretted it so much as now, when I need them for you. For a long time now, more or less aware of this extraordinary Lutheringhausen affair, I've thought often of the man who, in his cage, read, translated, put on my play. In all my life as man and writer, nothing like this has ever happened to me. To someone moved as I am, phrases come easily, but from a sloppy way of talking, not at all your style, given that I am no longer the same and will never again be able to be the same after what you have done, all of you. In the place where I've always found myself, where I will always find myself turning round and round, falling over, getting up again, it is no longer wholly dark, nor wholly silent. That you should have brought me such comfort is all that I can offer you as comfort. I, who am what is called free, to come and go, to gorge myself, to make love. I shall not be fatuous enough to dispense to you words of wisdom. To whatever my play may have brought you, I can add this only, the huge gift you have made me by accepting it. Sam Beckett.